Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back with you today to open up God's Word. We're continuing on with the, our study in the book of Acts, which we've entitled To the Ends of the Earth. We picked up the first half of the book of Acts uh, earlier in the year, took a little bit of time out while Skeet took us through a very excellent series covering the biblical truths about money. And now we're back in the book of Acts, following mostly Paul and his friends around on missionary journeys. And so we're going to turn in Acts to chapter 15, but before we do that, I would like to tell you about my favorite television show. That fits. I don't watch a lot of television, but I do watch this show, and I love it. And if any of you have seen it, how many of you have seen this show, Mythbusters? Wow, big audience. No, we don't need to clap for that. (laughs) Adam and Jamie are not in attendance, so it it just falls flat. Uh, I don't want to make this morning all about Mythbusters, but I have to tell you, I really like this show. And those of you who haven't watched it, uh, let me just explain it a little bit. They take a myth, a commonly thought truth. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not, but we're not quite sure. Anyway, these guys tackle it. And the whole point of the show is to take a myth, examine it, and decide whether it's true or false. And so at the end of the show, after each time one of these myths they go through, they give it a label. They either call it confirmed, the myth is true. They can call it plausible, because they're not quite sure, they're not able to prove one way or the other whether it's true. Or if they discover that the myth is totally false, they describe it as busted. See, you do watch. Excellent. So busted. Part of the reason I think I like this show is because these guys are a little crazy. It's really a very funny show. These guys, uh, in order to prove or to disprove some of these myths, they have to generate scientific experiments, mostly. Some of them are not so scientific. Some of them involve uh, going down to the butcher shop and buying large uh, pigs for uh, human beings instead. They use crash dummies. They use a lot of explosives. Uh, They use a lot of fire and flame. But they use a lot of scientific methods, too, and the book of physics uh, is often sort of enters into their equation. And so it's quite interesting story uh, line to watch it on TV and see these guys do these random experiments to try to prove things. Just to give you an example, one of the myths that they wanted to uh, examine was the myth uh, that the color red makes bulls angry and will make them charge. So if you've got a bull and you put the color red in front of them, will it make him angry and charge? And so to prove that, of course... They, uh, they took a bull and they put him under sedation and they took him down to the vet and they, they checked whether they were colorblind or not. No, that's not what they did at all. That would be way too boring. What they did was they went to Spain and they rented a bull ring and they rented some bulls. And so then they decided to put some matadors inside the bull ring in different colors. But they're wise enough to put uh, cut out wooden dummy matadors, dressed one up in red, One in white, one in blue, and maybe one in green. I don't exactly remember the colors. And then with these dummies in color standing in the bull ring, they let the bulls loose to see what would happen. And the bulls did nothing. They totally ignored these stiff wooden matadors standing there, uh, including the red one. And so they rigged up a very safe but rather silly uh, method of of clotheslines. While they stood outside the ring, they were able to jiggle the ropes and make the matadors' capes move. Well, that drew in a response from the bulls. All the bulls took off and ran after the moving capes, but it didn't really matter what color they were. First, they went after the blue one and, and knocked the matador down, and then they went after the white one and knocked him down. They went after the green one, and last, just coincidentally, they did the red one. 
which made them conclude that the bulls were not uh, at all uh, uh, incented by red, but it was the movement. And so to prove that they were right, uh, Adam, one of the guys here uh, pointing this um, device, whatever he's pointing at you, he put on a red jumpsuit and got in the ring. Okay? Sheer madness. Uh, but they did a safety measure. They put some guys on horses uh, in the ring with him so that in case he got in trouble, the horses could gallop in and grab uh, and, and, and go. Well, anyway... The guy got inside, and of course he was frightened stiff, so he stood like a board, and the bulls paid no attention whatsoever to him. And so they proved uh, that that myth is busted. So I found that kind of fun. <laughs> but they, that, they didn't stop there. They've done a whole bunch of these, uh, hundreds of them actually, just to name a few. Can drinking coffee help a drunk person sober up? A myth? They busted that one. Doesn't help. Is talking on a cell phone while driving as dangerous as driving drunk? Confirmed. They proved that one is true. Can drinking Diet Coke with Mentos make your stomach explode? <laughs> no. Busted. These are all true. I'm not making this up. You don't make this kind of stuff up standing up here. It's on TV. It's got to be true. Does double-dipping chips in chip dip really spread germs? Can ninjas, easy, can ninjas run on water like they do in the movies? Are elephants afraid of mice? Is it possible to teach an old dog new tricks? Would cockroaches really survive a nuclear explosion? Can a human voice shatter glass? Is food on the floor less than five seconds safe to eat? <laughs> can too many Christmas tree lights cause a house fire? Does a rolling stone really gather no moss? And can you throw a football filled with helium farther than a football filled with air? These are all myths that they either busted or confirmed or in some cases found plausible. It's a funny show. We're going to do a little bit of our own myth busting this morning, but the myth that we want to investigate is the following one. And finally, I'm going to make the connection to Scripture. Don't worry, you knew it was all coming. <laughs> the myth that we'd like to examine this morning is this. Will good people who do good things go to heaven? Will people who do good things go to heaven? Okay? Now, you can turn to the book of Acts, chapter 15. And as we do so, I would just like to open in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Acts and the section that we're about to study. We thank you that Luke faithfully recorded uh, what happened here among the church and I pray that as we examine it, Lord God, we would take to heart what it is, has to say for us. That each of us, uh, starting with me, Lord God, would have hearts and minds open to your word and to your spirit. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're turning to Acts chapter 15 and we're starting in verse 1. But I have to give you just a little bit of context for this first. This follows, uh, chapter 15 follows, coincidentally, chapter 14 where Paul and Barnabas had uh, returned from their first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas had a home church in a place called Antioch. Antioch, if you're finding that on a map today, would be right in the middle of Turkey, on the very south, right in the center, uh, on the edge of the Mediterranean and just a little bit north of Syria, just geography-wise. And so they took off and they went on this missionary journey. It took them about two years. They traveled about 1,600 miles. They went from Antioch to the, to the island of Cyprus, and then they went on uh, mainland into Turkey, cruised around Turkey, uh, encouraging, uh, teaching, preaching, 
uh, starting churches, and then they basically followed the route back and wound up back in Antioch. And at the end of chapter 14, they arrived back in, this, in the church at Antioch, and they had, I assume they had a missions banquet because that's what everyone does when they come back from a missions trip. They had a big potluck dinner. And they reported back to the church exactly what had happened on their missionary journey. And so that's the background for which we jump into uh, chapter 15 with Paul and Barnabas uh, back there in the church for a stay before they go on their second missionary journey. So they're back in their home church, and this is what happens. So we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So who were these guys that came down to Antioch from Judea? Well, they were Jewish Christians. They were Jews who had believed in Jesus, and they were from the area around Jerusalem, probably. It says Judea. They were not authorized by the leaders. We'll find that out a little bit later. These guys were not on any official journey. They were guys that were just traveling. They showed up in Antioch, and they told this story. So what exactly was the issue? Well, the issue is very clear in verse 1 and verse 5. First, they claimed that the Gentiles must, uh, must be circumcised before they can be saved. And then secondly, they wanted the Gentile Christians, that is the non-Jews, who became Christians to obey the law of Moses. That's in verse 5. So who did they think was going to solve this issue? Well, they could have taken it to Adam and Jamie of the Mythbusters. But they decided instead to go to the church in Jerusalem because that's where the church had started. That's where these guys that showed up in Antioch came from, and that's where the church leaders were. And so Paul and Barnabas traveled with some other guys and took the question there. So who were the leaders in Jerusalem? Well, you see them a little later in the chapter. Uh, Peter is there. Peter, we remember from the Gospels as the the flaky, wild-eyed Uh, impetuous, uh, up-and-down, hot-and-cold guy who you can trust one moment to slash the ear off a guy with a sword and the next minute to run away and and deny Jesus. But in the book of Acts, we see Peter in a much different light. We see him as a strong, mature leader. His life was clearly changed as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. We also see a guy named James. James is Jesus, one of Jesus' brothers, half-brothers technically, but he grew up with him. And James did not believe that Jesus, his own brother, was the Messiah until after Jesus rose from the dead. And after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus had a session with James in which he sat him down and said, James, you're my brother. I really am the Son of God. I just rose from the dead. And James obviously believed, became a leader of the church, and went on to write the book of James. So a couple solid guys, very strong leaders in the church, and this is where Paul and Barnabas go to get the answer to their question. And the question is, quite simply, do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved and should we require the Gentile believers to follow the law of Moses? 
Well, first of all, we have to ask the question, was the question itself a legitimate and sincere one? Or was somebody just yanking somebody's chain? And the answer is yes, it was a legitimate concern. It was a legitimate and a sincere question. And the reason is that you've got to remember that the Jews were God's chosen people. And God had promised to the Jewish nation that he would send a Messiah. But before he sent the Messiah, he gave them the law. And for thousands of years, the Jewish nation was all about reading, studying, learning, and following the law. And the law itself was quite important because it taught them what to eat, what and when to sacrifice, when to hold feasts, how to interact with other people in, in the Jewish nation, what rules to follow, how to stay clean. And then Jesus arrived, and he claimed to be the Messiah, and most of the Jews did not believe in Jesus, but some of them did. And so for those that did, they came to faith in Jesus, but then they were a little confused, and they thought, well, I'm lost here. Thousands of years of following the law, then Jesus comes, he's the Messiah. What do we do with this law? Surely all this time that we follow the law has got to count for something. Do we just chuck the law out and ignore it? What do we do? And so there was a fair bit of confusion among the Jewish believers who believed but just didn't know what to do about the law. So, yes, it was a legitimate and sincere question. We might also ask whether the question was a serious one, and the answer to that would be yes. At its heart, the question was, what must a man do to be saved? In other words, what must a person do in order to go to heaven when they die and not to go to hell? And Jesus himself was very clear on this question. What must a man do to be saved? And in the book of John, John 3.16, the most quoted Bible verse, I suspect, of the New Testament, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And again in John 6, it said, Then they asked him, What must they asked Jesus? What was must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. John 6.40, Jesus speaking again, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And the apostles picked it up. They had a clear idea of exactly what it meant to be saved, and this is what they taught, the same thing. And so in the Acts 16, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks, uh, the jailer, uh, was letting the apostles out. And he, the jailer, then brought them, that is, the apostles out, and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the apostles replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Romans 10.9, Paul writes that, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And John, in, his God, in the book of 1 John, says that you can have assurance of this. This isn't something that needs to be, you need to wonder about. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. And so the scriptures are very clear. Jesus was very clear. And what the apostles were and the disciples were teaching as they went around on their missionary journeys was exactly the same thing. To be saved is to believe in Jesus. We believe by faith. And it's by the grace of Jesus. And grace is a word that means it's a gift. It means it's free of charge. You don't have to put anything in. It doesn't cost you anything. There's nothing else that you need to do. But the Jews raised a new wrinkle. They said, fine, we're saved by faith, by believing in Jesus. But the heart of the question in chapter 15 is, are we saved by believing only or 
Do we have to do something in addition? Is it belief in Jesus plus circumcision? Is it belief in Jesus plus follow the law? And so, yeah, it's an important question. It's not a trivial one. And that's why Paul and Barnabas get on their horses and they go to Jerusalem to find out the answer. Because they think they know the answer, but they want to make sure. And so let's find out what the Jerusalem leaders did about it. Continuing on with verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the backs of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So, Peter clarified it for them. He said, the Gentiles are saved the same way that the Jews are saved. It's by faith. It's by the grace of Jesus. It's by believing in him. Grace being a free gift, free of charge, nothing else required. And so there it's settled. What must a man do to be saved? What must a man do to go to heaven and to avoid hell? And the answer is believe in Jesus. That's all. Nothing else. It's by faith. It's by the grace of Jesus. I like to call it saved by faith alone in Christ alone. I didn't make that line up. I heard it from somebody else, and I like it. For me, it's very crisp. It tells exactly what it is. It's saved by faith alone. Nothing else in Christ alone. Nobody else. One thing only. So what did the leaders in Jerusalem do? These Jewish Christians are saying that you must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses to be saved. Paul and Barnabas and Peter disagree. And so what do they do? Well, jump down to verse 22. They sent him a letter. Acts 15, verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. So they send some guys back with Paul and Barnabas to the church at Antioch, and they give them a letter. Let's solve this issue in writing with the witness of some good guys. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. This is a letter to the Gentiles now in Antioch. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds about what we said. They're referring back now to the Jewish Christians who had gone to Antioch. They didn't go with our authorization. They disturbed you. They troubled your minds. Verse 25. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, 
from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, I have to ask you, how many of you find this letter to be an unusual response? I must confess that the first many times that I read this letter, I thought, I'm sorry, I lost it. Because we've just gone through the argument, just decided that the Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith. It's uh, by grace. It's free of charge. Nothing else required. And so the letter to the church says, here's four burdens that you should follow. It just seems totally contradictory to me. Having just established that we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, it's good for you guys to do these four things. And so it's like, I'm lost. I'm missing it. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything except these four things. You will do well to avoid these things. So the question becomes, why did the leaders tell the Gentiles to do these things? Well, let's look at them a little bit. There's, there's two commands in here, and there's, there's two what I call personal concessions. The two commands are to avoid sexual immorality and to avoid idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of idols, not God. Sexual immorality is doing things uh, sexually outside of marriage. The Gentiles were clearly, in this culture, guilty of those two things. And so this command to the Gentiles can be taken and says, well, okay, those are bad things. Uh, Let's not do those. The other two are more of concessions. They're about eating. It says, don't eat food sacrificed to idols and don't eat meat with the blood in it or from strangled animals. And so those are a couple of preferences. But what's going on? Peter and Paul and Barnabas have just argued that, no, the Gentiles don't need to do anything else to be saved. And so why put four commands on the Gentiles in your letter? Well, the answer is unity. Unity. These commands that he gave them were not to change how they think about being saved. It was to cause peace and harmony in the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch being comprised, as many of the churches were, of a combination of Jews and Gentiles, suddenly, for the first time after thousands of years of being separated from one another, they're worshiping together in a church. And that church activity is similar to some of the church activities here. They eat eat meals a lot. They have potluck dinners. And so when the Jews and and the Gentiles would come together to have these dinners, there was an opportunity for a great deal of division because the Gentiles might be bringing to those potluck dinners the meat of strangled animals with the blood still in it, and that would be abhorrent to the Jews. And there were perhaps little things that the Gentiles could do, not really, really big things, and that would cause peace and harmony among the church. Now, you'll notice that what is not in the letter, the letter does not say that they have to do these things in order to be saved. The leaders at Jerusalem did not write back and say, you're not saved unless you stop sexual immorality and idolatry and stop eating meat sacrificed to idols and stop eating meat with blood in it. They didn't say that. So they weren't placing on the Gentiles a requirement to be saved. They are simply placing on them a requirement that would cause harmony and peace in the church. And they were laying down a principle which is clearly shown 
in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. Romans 14, 13 says, Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. 1 Corinthians 8, 9 says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. And the principle is very clear. We have freedom in Christ to do certain things that are not prohibited, but we have to be careful that when we exercise those freedoms, we don't cause somebody else to stumble. We don't cause somebody else, or perhaps even a weaker brother, who'd see you're doing that, and he'd be led into doing some sins. And so the letter, so we're not confused, is all about church unity. In a modern context, in a modern context, in a church today, you might have an example where you have, uh, let's say, a drug addict or an alcoholic. They come to faith in Jesus, and they believe in Jesus, and they want to come and join our church. And we wouldn't ever tell them, you have to stop drinking or using to be saved. We would never say, you are not saved until you're clean and sober. But we might, we might tell them, please don't drink or use drugs in our assembly here on a Sunday morning or in your life group on a Tuesday night. Because that would cause some of the, the, the other members of our congregation to stumble. Similarly, if there were two people in a homosexual relationship, we wouldn't tell them, you cannot be saved until you get out of that homosexual relationship. We shouldn't tell them that because it's not true. But we might tell them, but please, when you come on a Sunday morning, would you please abstain from any physical affection between the two of you because that will be abhorrent to many of our members. Those are the kinds of instructions that the church was giving between the Gentiles and the Jews in their church activity. And so asking them to do those things was probably a fairly minor thing to do and promoted church unity. So there, now no one's confused about the letter, and I'm not either. But the question then becomes, what do we do with this? Do we have this issue in our church today? Do we have this issue of circumcision and following the law in order to be saved? Well, no, we don't have that. We don't make a big deal out of circumcision. None of us would ever bump into a Christian today who would say to you, well, you can't be saved until you get circumcised. We would never say, I'm sorry, you can't be saved unless you follow the law of Moses. That's just not something that we would bump into in our culture today. No, we don't have that problem. That is, we don't have that problem. We are modern people, sophisticated and intellectuals. We have higher IQs than those in the first century church. We are cultured beings. We don't tell people to follow the laws of Moses and be circumcised. We say stupid things like, well, unless you are baptized, you can't be saved. Well, unless you allow Jesus to be fully controlled of every aspect of your life, you're probably not saved. We say things like, you know, if you're disobedient to God and are not following his rules, you're probably going to lose your salvation. And we might even go so far as to say that if you don't dress like I do and look like I do and drive the same kind of car I do and hang out in the same kind of places I do, we probably don't really want you involved in our church congregation and maybe you ought to think about whether you want to get saved somewhere else. And so we're probably just as guilty as the Pharisees are of putting things in the way, burdens in the way, of other people to becoming Christians. And we've got to check ourselves and watch that at all times, lest we become legalistic 
and we start wearing the hat called Pharisees. And that is a problem. But we got a much, much bigger problem than that. And the problem we have is what I call the biggest myth in the world, and 80% of Americans believe it. And the myth is the one I introduced at the very beginning. And the myth is that the way to get to heaven is to do more good things than bad things. That's the myth. Do more good things than bad things, and you will go to heaven. And that is the myth. And you see it all over the place. Talk to people. Walk down the street, if you're bold enough, anywhere. Walk up to someone you don't know and say, do you know who Jesus is? And they'll say, yes. Almost everyone knows who Jesus is. He's famous. Ask them then, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or not? And they will probably say, not sure. I hope so. And then ask them the $64 question. If you were to stand at the gates of heaven and God were to say to you, why should I let you in? 80% of them will say, because I think I've done more good things than bad things. And it is a myth, and it's very pervasive in our society. I help out on, with Angel Food Ministry on a Saturday morning once a month. It's a great ministry. Many of you are involved in it. Uh, people in our community uh, come on a Saturday morning. Uh, they pay a fair, very fair price for a box of good quality food. And on the Saturday morning when they come, I have the pleasure of carrying out the boxes to their cars. And when I do that, what a great opportunity is for me. It's not for them. To pray for them. And so last week we did this, and I said, you know, today I'm going to do it slightly different. I always ask them about, about their belief. I'm going to ask every person I talk to three questions. The first question I'm going to ask is, do you know Jesus? And 95% of people said yes. And then I would say, okay, and if you were to die tonight, do you think you'd go to heaven? And 85% of the people I asked, that's exactly what I just thought they would say. They would say, well, I'm not sure. I hope so. And I would always follow up, every single one of them, with the question, if you were standing at the gates of heaven, what would you say to God if he said, well, I should let you in? And they all said, all of them, 80% of the people who didn't know the right answer said, because I hope I've done more good things than bad things. And now you're sitting there and go, well, What's wrong with good works, right? What, what, what's, what's so special about good works? Good, good works don't have any, any, any business in our Christian society. What's the problem? What are good works for? Well, yes, God likes good works, but he doesn't like good works for the purpose of being saved, and that's the confusion. And so you should ask this morning, okay, well, what are good works all about? What are they for? Well, Matthew, uh, Jesus makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men. Could I get the next slide, please? That they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's very simple. Jesus tells them, go out and do good works. For what purpose? Well, let your light shine in front of people who don't know me. So that they can see your good works and do what? So they can praise God. So they can say, wow, there's something different about you. You do all these good works for what? And I said, do it for the honor of, honor of God. Well, who's this God? Let me introduce you to God. And when I introduce you to God, maybe I can introduce you to his son Jesus. And maybe you can believe in his son Jesus and be saved. That's the purpose of good works. The good works is like a beacon of light that he says, let your light shine so that people will be drawn to it. Not so that the, the works themselves can save us. We do good works for God's praise and for God's glory, but the fact is that people do not know how to get to heaven. And you can even talk to them. Some of them say, when I said that Jesus died for your sins, I share the gospel with many of them. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that Jesus died for our sins. 
But they haven't connected up the die for our sins and the how to get saved. They don't put the two together. And it is Satan's biggest lie. It is Satan's biggest myth. Satan, Satan is not going to come up to you or in your head and say, Jesus doesn't exist, or God doesn't exist, or that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. He won't even try to convince you that Jesus didn't die on the cross for your sins. But what he will try to do is to try to say, tell you the way to get to heaven is doing more good works than bad works. Why does he do that? Because he knows if he can get those people... This is mostly a half-truth. Because most of those people in that box called, the only way I can get to heaven is to do good, more good works than bad works. He has taken Jesus out of the equation. And when you take Jesus out of the equation, you can't get saved. And so he's got 80% of Americans are walking around thinking to themselves, I hope I get to heaven, I hope I get to heaven, I've got to do more good works than bad works, and they're out there doing good stuff, and they're missing it. And it is the biggest myth in the world today, in my view. And 80% of Americans believe it. And it's a lie. I had the same problem growing up. I know it's a lie. I grew up in a Catholic church, and for the first 26 years of my life, I did not know that Jesus died for my sins. And that the only way to go to heaven was to believe in Jesus. I didn't hear that until I was 26 years old. And I grew up in the Catholic church... And I heard about the Sermon on the Mount, and I heard about walking on the water, and the healing the blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus died for the sins of the world. And, and then when I asked the question, how do I get to heaven? Here's the answer I got. Do more good works than bad works, and maybe, just maybe, you'll get in. And I had that, and I grew up with that. And 26 years later, fortunately, some neighbors down the street were kind enough to inform me that is not quite the truth. And it took me a whole year after they told me the truth to examine what the Bible says about it because I wasn't one to be just influenced by a couple of neighbors down the street. Good works will not get us into heaven. Karen and I taught sixth grade Sunday school here several years ago for a long period of time. Many years. And so... <laughs> Some of those kids are now adults sitting in here, but <clears throat> don't raise your hand. Uh, one thing I like to do, and I did it with every group that came through, and it was uh, fun and interesting, but a little sad. I would ask this, this group of sixth grade uh, Sunday school kids, I would say, how do we get to heaven? What do we got to do in order to be saved? What do we got to do to get ourselves into heaven? One bright child, somebody's son or daughter in here, would raise their hand and say, believe in Jesus. And I'd say, yes, what else? And they'd say, read your Bible? Nope. What else? Pray a lot? Nope. What else? Go to church? Nope. What else? Give money to the poor? Nope. What else? Help my mom wash the dishes? No. What else? Finally, they'd give up. And they'd go, come on, tell us what else. And I'd say, nothing else. But every time I'd ask them, they'd fall for it. The fact of the matter is that your kids, your kids are growing up hearing that 80% myth and they're carrying it around with them. And you can't, you can't get it out of their heads. How do we expect adults to understand what Jesus meant when our little kids are hearing the stuff on TV, on radio, and everywhere else? It's the biggest myth. It's a big problem. Salvation. It's by faith alone and Christ alone. When I was 26 years old, somebody busted the myth for me. And it's pretty simple. Number one, if you sin, you're going to hell. 
Number two, everybody sins, we're all going to hell. Number three, the good news, Jesus died for your sins to cover them up. Number four, believe in Jesus, all your sins are forgiven, you go to heaven. It's that simple. Boil it all down, the confusion comes down to those four little points. And Satan has done a great job of twisting them around. So when somebody asks me, John, if you were to die tonight, do you think you'd go to heaven? And I tell them, yes, absolutely, no doubt about it. And I am going to die someday. And when I die, because God has a sense of humor, I know, I think, that I'm going to be standing at the gates of heaven, and God is going to say to me, John, why should I let you in? And I'm going to say, because I believe in Jesus, he died for my sins, I'm coming in. And God is going to say to me, that's fine, John, you believe in Jesus, but what else? (laughs) And I'm going to say, nothing, and he's going to say, come on in. And I am looking forward to that day. And God and I are going to have a good chuckle about that. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of people aren't going to have a chuckle. There's a lot of people that are going to wind up at that gate. And God is going to say, why should I let you in? And they're going to say, yeah, I think I've done more good things than bad things. And as gently as our Lord can do it, he's going to say, You believed a myth. I'm sorry. Paul said it best in his letter to the Ephesians. In fact, if you want to pick up the book of Galatians, read the entire book. It's all about this issue. What must a man do to be saved? It's got nothing to do with our works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, many of you know it. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. Through faith, by grace. This is not a result of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. It's not how we get to heaven. Good works are to glorify God, but they're not involved in getting us to heaven. And so the myth. Will people who do good works go to heaven? And I can say the myth is busted. Busted. Good works have nothing to do with whether you go to heaven. We'll go to heaven only if we believe in Jesus and nothing else. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you that you've made it so easy. It's a gift. It doesn't cost us anything. By grace, by faith in Christ alone, we can be saved, and we can know that we'll be in heaven when we die. It's got nothing to do with our good works. And so, Lord, I pray. I pray that this myth that Satan has perpetuated, that so many Americans believe, Lord God, would be knocked down and exposed for what it is, that the myth would truly be busted. And that if there's anyone here this morning who has that thought in their mind, and I bet there is, Lord, because you bump into them everywhere, who have bought into this myth that more good works than bad works will get us into heaven, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to them today. They would change their minds. They would trust in your Son, Jesus, and that you and you alone be glorified and honored through that. For we pray all these things in the precious, powerful name of your Son, Jesus.
And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you.